Well, good morning, everybody. It's been a little while. It's good to be back. Hey, this morning, we are going to finish the last week of a four-part teaching series that we've simply called Overwhelmed. As, as we've been in the middle of this, what we've been watching is the story of a man named Jonah and how God, despite all of his running, continued to pursue him. And, and here's my read this morning, that there are many of us who are on the run from God, and God is hot on our heels. And, and what we learned earlier was that God's not out to get us. He's out to bring us back. And that each and every one of us is in one of two categories. We are either a runner from God, or we are a former runner from God. And we're going to take one last look at this life of Jonah and for many of us, I hope it's the place where God grabs our hearts and realigns it with his. For many of us, I, I hope that, that in the middle of our running, God begins to have his voice come through and we turn and run back to the God who created us. And so I just want to pause as we begin. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for this morning. I want to pray that God would have his way in us together. God, this morning, amidst all the distractions in the middle of everything we carried in here, in, in the middle of all the things that would cause us to run from you or be distracted from you or long for things that are not you, would you send your spirit to us this morning and draw us back in ways that we cannot resist, in ways that we cannot deny? Do what only you can do today. Amen. Okay, so here's my confession been working in churches for 15 years. I've been peddling the same stories for my life for 15 years. I have this eerie suspicion that I have shared this story before, but I can't remember at which church and whether it was this one. So if I have told this before, my bad, it's already on the paper. We can't change it now. When I was a child, my mom and dad told me that I was a pretty good only child until I had brothers in the picture and then I despised them deeply. Like I did not like my brothers for the first several years of life. They wrecked a good thing I had going on. But as a kid, before my brothers came, my parents continued to tell me that my middle brother, AJ, was coming. They would tell me again and again and again, AJ is coming, AJ is coming. And one day my dad shows up early at preschool and he says, AJ's coming. He's here. We got to go to the hospital and meet AJ. To which I said to my dad, what color is he? <laughs> my dad was a little confused. He said, well, AJ, or AJ's, he, he looks like you and I. He looks like your mom and your dad. He's your brother. And I threw a holy fit. Like I was done. Sat down on the ground, looked at my mom and my dad. And I said, brother, I wanted a puppy done, just furious about it. And from that point forward until we were teenagers, my parents tell me that we did not get along. I did not like him. I was the oppressor of my brother, AJ, the not puppy uh, resident in our house. It just didn't go really well. <laughs> and looking back on that, one of the things uh, that I recognize is, is the lens through which we look at people determines how we feel about them. I was fine with a new entity in our home as long as it was a puppy and not another human vying for my attention. I was fine. And in our lives, it works this way. How we see other people determines really how we feel about them how we see them, the, the factors that we value, the things that we don't value, the lenses in which we look into the lives of other people ultimately determine the feelings that we have towards them. 
The feelings that other people have towards us are ultimately determined by the lens through which they look into our lives. The way you feel about the people in your life right now, the people sitting to the left or the right of you ultimately comes down to several factors. At times, it's the lens through which you are looking at them through. And try as we might, none of, our, none of us are exempt from this tendency, this bent in our lives. And there are hundreds of variables that determine how we see the people around us. Hundreds of variables in which we begin to paint a, paint a picture of what we think other people may be like or not be like. Sometimes it's their demeanor. Are they like caustic, upfront, kind of abrupt? Or are they like smooth and sweet, kind of polite? If you're in Raleigh, which we all are, you'd get this. Are they northern? Mm-hmm. Some of y'all, you know, you're the northern people. Or are they southern? Take eight years to say something, you know? I've lived in both places. I get it. Or, or maybe we make that decision based on their kids. Like, were they loud when we hung out? You know, did they break my stuff when their kids came over? Or were they quiet and peaceful and calm? Really, all we're looking at is whether they had a nap before they came. Sometimes we make those judgment calls based on the music we hear other people listening to or or the haircut or lack of haircut uh, that they may or may not have. Sometimes it's not as simple as that. Sometimes it's the neighborhoods we find that someone else lives in or the car that they drive, we make assumptions or the schools that they or their children attend. Sometimes it's based on the clothing that other people wear or the accent that they may have no matter where that may be from. And even at times we make those judgment calls based on their demographic, their background, their income, or their skin color. And we have to understand, we take a step back from this, this does not simply just impact how we see people or how we feel about them. Ultimately, our our, our vision of people leads to how we feel about them, and then that begins to lead into how we value people. Based on what we see and how we feel, we oftentimes go and assign a value on one end of the spectrum, very human, desirable, lovable, and depending on those variables, maybe something altogether different, something else. I think if we kind of peruse through the pages of history, what we know, what we'll find very quickly is that some of the darkest moments in the history of humanity have been when we allowed this bit, this tendency to go unchecked, to determine the desires and the feelings and the values we place on large groups of people. Here's the interesting thing. As a culture, you can kind of look around the edges and see that we kind of still organize ourselves this way without saying it out loud. Sometimes it's on Facebook. It it can come with a thumbs up, maybe a thumbs down. Now there's all kinds of other faces you can assign in there, kind of how I feel about what someone said. Or you can get on Yelp and you can like talk about a business and you can give them like a three star or a four star or a five star. You could log on to this new app called People with two E's, P-E-E-P-L-E, where now no longer do you assign values to people based upon their business experience or the interaction you may have had on, on, on the organization that they run or the hotel that they may own. Now you can get on People and rate individuals. 
and they don't have to sign up for the service. That means I could have a conversation with you and love it. And whether you signed up for it or not, I can type your name in and give you four stars, five stars, and leave my comments about what I think about you. You could do the same for me. Apparently, it went pretty bad for one of the owners of that company. They have one of the most low ratings that anyone can earn. Apparently, it wasn't very popular that they made the website. You can go to other websites like Rate My my Professor. You can have your attractiveness rated by other people. You can rate your doctor, an attorney, or anyone else. As a culture, the lens through which we see people starts to impact how we feel and how we feel now, not just in metaphysical ways, but in very tangible, legible ways can now assign a value to a person, a place, an organization, or a thing. But I don't want you to miss this because this is important. The next time you log on Facebook, the next time you get in that app, the next time you go for Yelp, we need to understand that how we feel or value people is almost never a true estimation of who they really are, whether we value them exceptionally high or exceptionally low. And I want to ask a big question this morning, one that that maybe it'll take a few weeks to sink in, a big question that I hope makes its way under your skin and deeper into your heart. Here it is. What would it take to see people, all people, any person? What would it take to see people how God sees them? Here's the better question. What begins to change when you and I catch catch a glimpse of how God sees other people, when his vision begins to overwhelm, as we've talked about, our vision for individuals. Here's the big idea that's going to drive our discussion this morning. If you forget everything else, I just want to challenge you to write this down because it'll change your life. It says this, when I see what God sees, I will feel what God feels. That impacts our vision, it impacts our hearts, it impacts our value system. When I see what God sees, I will feel what God feels. And we're going to have ushers coming down the aisle with Bibles. We're going to look at this one last chapter of Jonah's life, the last thing that we really read about him. If you need a Bible, you can borrow it, keep it, take it, it's free. Just put your hand up, we'll pass one down to you. You can read along on the screens as well. Here's here's where we've kind of tracked with Jonah this far as God begins to teach him this lesson. First, Jonah gets a call to go to his enemies in Nineveh and go preach that God was going to destroy them if they didn't turn from their ways. And And Jonah looks back at God and he goes, no way. And he runs towards Tarshish, gets on a boat and thinks he can float his way away from God. And yet God catches up with him in the middle of this and brings a storm, the likes of which Jonah had never experienced so bad that the sailors end up agreeing to throw him overboard. Jonah, the man running from God, has found himself overcome, overwhelmed by God's presence, and now he's literally lost at sea with no hope of getting to shore. And yet, again, God provides for Jonah in a way that you would go, God, just keep it, you know, I don't want this. He provides a fish, a whale, a something, some kind of sea creature to swallow Jonah. And Jonah literally spends three days in the belly of this whatever it was, 
He kind of goes into timeout and reflects and he repents. He turns back to God. And I love the words that the NIV, a different translation uses, that after he repents, God commands the fish and it vomits him onto the shore. Seaweed, phytoplankton, whatever is around him, I don't know. And now barf-covered, seaweed-ridden Jonah makes his way back into the city of Nineveh, preaching the worst sermon that has ever been preached in the history of sermons. He walks into the middle of town and literally looks at everybody and says, hey, God's going to kill you people. Bye. That's it. And Jonah is hoping that his mortal enemies, the Ninevites, would just go, you know what, get out of here and be destroyed. But God does something because God does things that we can't do on our own. And the entire city, 120,000 men and women go into mourning. The king himself takes off every nice piece of clothing that he has, puts on the nastiest clothes he can find, and they issue a time of mourning and repentance across the entire kingdom. And God spares the city. And then we see Jonah, Jonah chapter four, one through three. Let's see what happens. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that I knew you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran to Tarshish. Oh, there it is. He wasn't afraid. It wasn't that he was a chicken. It wasn't that he was a coward. He didn't want these people to have hope. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. God, you are awesome, so just kill me, please. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Jonah is in the lightest words possible having a little bit of a moment, Right? <laughs> We'd all look, if this was your two-year-old, he'd be in timeout. They would get a spanking. You'd be like, Jonah, it's time for a nap, dude. Got to chill this out, man. I mean, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Guys, you'll get this. Jonah could have been having the moment we all have when our families are gone and there's a mirror in front of us. You know, we've all had it since we were like teenagers where we save things. You know what I'm talking about. It's that mirror moment where you're you got bigger muscles than you normally have. And you saved the day. Maybe you're on a sports team and you saved the team. Or, or maybe it's the imaginary you know, thing that happens when you save uh, you know, the people or you save your workplace or you save the girl and you do your kung fu moves in front of the mirror. You know that one. <laughs> Jonah literally showed up in town, spoke words that saved the lives of 120,000 people. He should be doing all the kung fu moves he could. And he pouts. He throws a fit. He is furious. So why? I mean, there are a couple of different ways you could look at this. Maybe Jonah's afraid of what people would ask when he went home. Like he goes back to where he came from, and people are like, hey, bro, Jonah, you've been gone for a while. What's going on? He's like, well, get this, guys. I went to Nineveh. You know, that nasty people with the big army. I went right in the middle of their town. And I told him, God's going to kill you. Oh, that's awesome. And people would have been excited about that. Jonah, well, what happened? Well, I kind of warned them. And then God changed his mind. They all repented and they're fine. Don't worry about it. I mean, that would not be popular. Maybe Jonah's worried about going home and what, what the cost of being merciful would have on his life. 
Or, or perhaps Jonah was just really evaluating the situation. Now, you have to understand this. The Ninevites were not like people on the other side of the tracks. It wasn't like the Ninevites were just, you know, they held different values or they listened to different music or maybe they voted different. That was not the case. They sacrificed their own children. They killed mercilessly. They would find people and sacrifice them to their gods without regret or remorse. They were awful people. Think ISIS back in Jonah days. That was them. Maybe Jonah just couldn't handle the fact that these people would be shown mercy. I think I would have a hard time with that. But check out again what he says to him. He, he knew, see, despite how Jonah saw the Ninevites, he knew how God saw the Ninevites. He knew it before he even left. He, he said this, we'll just look back at what he said. I, I knew you were a merciful God and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Is this the picture you got of God? Let me just ask you that. Maybe you're here running this morning and you're running from someone that's not chasing you. You're running from the wrong God because that God doesn't exist. God is a merciful, compassionate, slow to anger God. Sometimes we run from an angry God who was never there. Somebody told us a lie. Jonah 4.4, 4, God looks back at his pouting prophet and he says this, is it right for you to be angry about this? Essentially, what he does is go, hey, Jonah, wasn't it just you on the run? You told me no, right? Wasn't it just you on the boat that they threw overboard? Wasn't it just you with no buoy, no lifeline, no life vest, no nothing? You were about to drown to death. Wasn't it you in the belly of the whale who finally came to your stubborn senses and repented? Wasn't it you who walked into the middle of the enemy city where they could have killed you like that? And I was the only one that kept you alive in the boat and the storm and the fish and the city. Wasn't it just you? Uh, essentially, he looks at him, he goes, wasn't it just you? Remember how he described God who needed mercy, who was desperate for compassion, who was hoping I would be slow to anger, who was glad that I was eager to help you survive and not destroy you? But if we're being honest, let's just be honest. Can't we all just picture that one person? We go, yeah, God, I want the mercy and I want the compassion, but not, not them. I know, you're better than I am. I can picture that person, vividly. <laughs> Don't we all just have that one person? I know you have that person. Who would go, God, oh, I want compassion. I want compassion for most people. I want compassion for even, even seedy people, people I don't agree with. But God, not that person. Who knows what motivates it? Maybe it's that they have different beliefs or they're from a different country or they do different things. Maybe they have a different political stance as you or they kneeled or didn't kneel at a football game. Maybe that person. And the thought that runs through our minds every time we find our exception is this. God, won't you just give them what they deserve? But in those moments, I think God whispers the same thing to us. Do you have a right wasn't it just you? Wasn't it just you who cried out to me? Wasn't it just you that blew it? Wasn't it just you that hoped no one would see that thing that you did? Wasn't it just all of us? So here's the thing about mercy. Mercy is horribly offensive when we realize no one deserves it. 
It's the thing about mercy. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. It is a choice to give despite evidence to the contrary. Mercy is never earned. If mercy could be earned, religion would work great. Say your you know, prayers, do your things, kneel enough times, and you would feel great the next morning. But mercy is not found in religion. Mercy is a gift afforded to us by Jesus Christ alone. It is given only to those who know they aren't deserving of it. And this is where the story begins to get weird. Check this out. Verse five and six. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and he made a shelter to sit as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged, there's that word again, he arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And as soon as it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, it shaded him from the sun. This eased his discomfort and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So check out how twisted Jonah is. God and him have this exchange. The big day is saved. He goes out on the side of the hill and he waits to see if God would just, you know, maybe change his mind again, destroy everybody. He gets popcorn. He's waiting for the fireworks, you know, whatever. And he's kind of got my hair cut by nature like me. And he's in the desert and he realizes, man, this is getting rough. I'm gonna have a sunburn. And God provides for him. Yet again, at least it wasn't a whale, right? And then it goes on. But God arranged, yet again, for a worm. Weird. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah's bald, burned head, in parentheses. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and he wished he would die. Here we go, teenager, throwing a fit again. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Now, is this not kind of funny? Like, you may not be all about this God thing. Maybe you don't know about it, but at least you got to zoom out and go, God's got a sense of humor. Like, here's your plant, cutting the plant. Now your bald head is burned. How do you feel about that? Throw your little temper tantrum. God arranged, this word arranged, this one word is woven all throughout the four chapters of Jonah. God arranges for some stuff that you would not want God to arrange for. It was God who arranged the storm that stopped Jonah from running away from God. Understand that it also kept Jonah near God. It was God who arranged the fish that ate Jonah. I'm not signing up for that one. Please, Lord, don't arrange that for me. And yet God kept him alive in a miracle that I'm sure Jonah would never, ever forget. It was God who arranged this plant that gave shade to Jonah. And yet he arranged for the worm that ate it and removed it from his sight. And God arranged the wind. Get this, all throughout this story, every time God arranges something, he is working to get Jonah's attention. He is working for the purpose of rescuing Jonah rescuing from his sinful heart, rescuing, rescuing him from being absent and divided from God, rescuing him from death, rescuing him from his own brokenness. In the midst of Jonah's tantrum and in the midst of God orchestrating salvation for hundreds of thousands of people, God was still arranging individual moments in Jonah's life to rescue Jonah. What he wanted for Jonah was what he wants for you. It's what he wants for me, that we would begin to see people, we would begin to see life the way that God sees it. Because what does our big idea say? When I see what God sees, I will feel 
what God feels. And this is so huge for some of us here this morning. I don't want you to miss this, that some of us look at life like we would look at Jonah in this moment, this little tantrum thrower. We go, God, just move on, right? We think God's moved on from us. Like God just went on, he did his own thing, he went about his own business. We think, God, I've messed up too much. Surely you're trying to pay me back, not bring me back, right? But that's not what God shows us. Or sometimes we look at world events and we go, God, how could all this be going on and you be concerned about little old me? And yet what we see in the life of Jonah is true in our own lives that God is arranging moment after moment after moment to bring us back. God may be leveraging this very moment, the next few moments of your life to arrange for your very salvation to give you the forgiveness you thought you would never have, to wipe out your sin in ways you never thought could be done, to bring you back into relationship with God when you thought all he wanted was to repel you away. God is arranging this moment maybe for your rescue. Check out the next verse. God said to Jonah, here it goes again, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? And Jonah keeps on going. Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. He's like my son. It's mine. But here it comes. Verse 10 and 11. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about this plant, though you did nothing to put it there. And it came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Like, dude, if you don't care about people, care about the livestock. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Essentially, God looks at Jonah and he says, Jonah, you don't have a plant problem. You have a people problem. God, you don't, or Jonah, you don't have a plant problem. You have a perspective problem. You have a vantage point problem. You have a sight problem. And God is trying to help Jonah see what God is seeing so Jonah would feel what God was feeling, broken for people separated from him, no matter what their idol worship had led them to, no matter the sins that they had committed. They were the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst And yet God saw them with mercy and his heart broke for them. And it's to that point that God is trying to lead Jonah. And this morning for some of us, it's where God is trying to lead us. He is realigning the misaligned heart of his sons and his daughters. See, God tells Jonah that he's looking through the wrong lens. He's looking through the lens of the moment. He's looking through the lens of his own preference, of his own selfishness, of his own desires. And he's telling Jonah, I'm looking through a lens that sees the depth of human need, the aching of the human heart. I am looking at the very groanings of the soul. I am looking at all of this through the perspective of eternity. Jonah, see things a little differently. How in the world could this man feel sorry for a dying plant instead of aching for dying people? And yet how can you and I at times worry about the things that we worry about without concern for the people in our lives? I I did some like review of my week. I, I spent the week in Ohio assessing church planters for future ministry opportunities. And God kind of poked at me in the middle of that. 
I started thinking about the things that most concern me. I saw a guy park in a handicapped spot and then skip on in. Let me just tell you what, bro was about to be handicapped. I was upset about it. I did a lot of laundry last week. I folded a whole lot of underwear. I felt like maybe it was a little more than my share. I got a little upset about that. I went in, maybe parents, you've been there. I walked into my preschool, very excited because it was the day, the day that Miles went to a new classroom and I got a price break on daycare. And they told me, and I was like, man, that's awesome. Then they handed me a form that said, by the way, we are having price increases across the entire preschool. I'm right back where I started. I was upset about that. But as I watched these church planters this week, they were cashing in everything that they had. They were selling houses. They were getting rid of all of their stuff. And it wasn't like an entrepreneurial journey where sometimes you hear the story, people sell everything that they have and they go off to find their fortune. Like they build the building from the ground up and then the a business eventually provides for their retirement. That is not part of the church planning journey. There's no fortune at the end of it. But I watched men and women who were broken for the cities that they were going to. They were broken for the places that God was sending them. They were willing to get rid and sell and remove anything that stood in the way, anything that would fund the journey. While I sat there, I felt God say to me, Austin, don't you remember selling your house? Remember taking out a $20,000 loan to pay it off? Remember when you would do anything for people who needed to know me? Don't you care anymore? Mm, let me tell you what, it's hard to preach this sermon after that moment. You're concerned about laundry, parking lot justice, 15 bucks a week? What about the 1.2 million people who live in Wake County? What about your neighbor who just lost his father? What about the guy you haven't met across the street? You don't even know his name. Austin, don't you care? Do you? Maybe you're here and it's your first time. You need to know that, that I may not have seen you the right way. Your neighbor may not have seen you the right way, but God is deeply concerned for you. He loves you. See, the sobering realization of my life, I, I hope it's not the sobering realization in your life, but I think it's natural for us all, is that most of the time I'm far more like Jonah than I am like God. And if I could see what God sees, if you could see what God sees, you'd feel what he feels. Your value system would be different. How you treat people would be different. And the city in which we live needs a group of people like this church to look out and to see differently, to feel differently, to love greater, to respond more. Check out this picture. It's a man named Bob Pierce. 1947, Bob Pierce took a business trip to China. While he was there, he decided to stop by a mission there in the area that he was at. It was a mission school. And as Bob was watching from the back of the line, he noticed that the food line ran out of food. And in the back, the kids who hadn't gotten food yet were literally falling over dead. And it broke his heart. He did what he could while he was there and he got on a plane and he went back to LA and he quit everything he was doing. And he started an organization you may have heard of called World Vision. 
And later in life, Bob opened his Bible and wrote a one-sentence prayer that I hope drives home for you today. It said this, let my heart be broken for the things that break the heart of God. What he ultimately wrote is when I see what God sees, I will feel what God feels. For many of you, you've been a part of a 13-year journey here at LifePoint Church. And over the last 13 years, you may have given more than you ever thought was possible. You may have sold stuff to make this building a reality. For some of you, you have served week in and week out. You were on a setup team that got moved to a safety team that does all kinds of other things. You've been the people that orchestrate everything that happens here. You've greeted people at the doors. You've loved on our kids. Tonight, there will be more adults who come back and care for high school students. In the middle of the week, it'll be middle school students. And you have invested again and again and again. Why? Because somewhere along the way, God began to give you a glimpse of how he sees people in Wake County, kids in Wake County, children and teenagers in Wake County, and we have literally baptized hundreds if not thousands of people. Their lives forever changed because you saw what God saw. Today, ministry continues on because of that very same commitment. When you see what God sees, you will feel what God feels. So I want to speak to two groups of people this morning. The first one's this. It's those of us who've been following Jesus, but we've gotten blurry in our vision. Maybe you got concerned about stuff at home more than the heart of God. That 401k more than something else. The car you're driving, the car I'm driving. You got concerned about the lawn or what, whatever else distracts us in life. And I want to give you a chance to answer a couple of questions for me. You have to answer them out loud. So like this is participation here. So I want you to think of how God is calling you in this moment to respond. You can answer one of three ways. I want you to say out loud. You can say no. It's totally cool. Do that. You can say maybe. Also fine answer. And you can say yes. So let me ask you. We'll answer together. Shouldn't God feel compassion for the one half million people that live in Raleigh proper? Let me ask it a little differently. Shouldn't I, you, me, shouldn't we feel compassion for the 1.2 million people living in Wake County? Shouldn't we be concerned about the things that God is concerned about? And maybe as we close later, you just need to sit in your chair and pray, God, I have not seen how you've called me to see. I got blurry along the way. Maybe you need to take a moment like I have this week and just go, God, I need to be like you again. You can respond. Just pray right where you're at. But here's a second group of people. Maybe you're here wondering how God sees you. You were the one that parked in the parking spot. <laughs> Maybe you're living in a mess. Maybe you have ruined stuff. And you think God sees you as this little brat that ought to go pout on a hill. And God's not trying to run you off. He's trying to bring you back to him. And today, after service, if you want to talk about what it means to know a God who loves you despite everything in your past, I'll be hanging out up here. I'd love to talk to you. Let's pray. God, help us to see others how you see them. God, for some of us today, help us to see ourselves how you see us and take you up on your offer of mercy. God, we would have nothing without you. 
I pray for my friends who need to run to you. God, would you give them the boldness to just simply cry out to you and know that you meet them right there. God, would you extend your mercy and your love in that very moment? May they know right here, right now, that your presence surrounds them and accepts them. And for those of us whose eyes are off, God, drive us back to reflect your heart in all that we do. As you say in the Old Testament, break our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, your heart that beats for the needs and the brokenness of this city. Amen.